Greetings, everyone. Welcome back to Seminary Unboxed. This is Dr. Matt Ayers, your host and president of Wesley Biblical Seminary. Seminary Unboxed is the official podcast of Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we develop trusted leaders for faithful churches. And today we continue in our study of the book of Revelation. Last episode, we talked about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I think if I had one more comment to make about that episode um, that I failed to, to point out, and I just think it's, it's important, is that what the text collectively, you know, the four horsemen plus the martyrs crying out plus the earthquake is showing us. We said that to the original audience, this is a reminder that the persecution that they suffer at the hands of the government around them and secular society around them um, is temporal. Um, but in addition to that, its downfall uh, will be the result of things that happen in the metaphysical world. So the prayers of the saints and God's intervention in history is what will cause things to shift. So before we even get into questions like, can we date, can we project or predict when these things will happen, among who, who does, re- does this refer to, are there times in history where we've already experienced the four horsemen of the apocalypse, so on and so forth. I think that those are um, just speculative. We don't know exactly. I think that we can try to guess. Um, however, what we do know is what the text is telling us is that God is in complete control of history and that this temporal kingdom that is set against God and his people will fall and it will not be the result of just random processes, but rather it will be because God's divine intervention uh, in response to the work of Jesus and the prayer of the church. So um, just want to clarify that point, drive that point home. And so today we move into Revelation chapter 7. Um, and so Revelation, Revelation chapter 7 is uh, the ceiling of the 144,000. And uh, remember that Revelation 6 is the first six seals. Uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that's seals 1 to 4. Seal 5 is the prayers of the saints. Seal 6 is the great earthquake. And then before we get to seal seven, which ends up being uh, the seven trumpets, which is strange because we have a seal that is a trumpet, we have an interlude, and that's what chapter seven is. It's an interlude that focuses on the sealing of the 144,000. So um, let's see here. So uh, Mounts, Robert Mounts, says this, Chapter 7 comes as a parenthesis between the sixth and the seventh seals, a stylistic feature repeated in the trumpet sequence that we're going to see in chapter, between chapters 10 and 11, but not with the bowls that we encounter in chapter 16. Uh, it also serves as a dramatic interlude that delays for a brief moment the disclosure of that which is to take place when the seventh seal, seventh and final seal is removed from the scroll of destiny. So in other words, Mounts is, is suggesting here, and I think he's right, is that this interlude, this pause um, between the sixth and the last, the seventh seal, creates like a, creates like a buildup of anticipation. It's kind of like a drum roll before the great final symbol crash, the climactic seventh seal. And so, um, and again, this happens again with the trumpets. There's an interlude between trumpet six and trumpet seven. Um, so we can actually divide chapter seven into two subsections, the sealing of the saints in verses one to eight, and then the great multitude in verses nine to 17. There's a good deal of debate over um, if these are two distinct groups or the same people, whether the 144,000 are all of God's people or historic Jews, ethnic Jews. And uh, we'll touch on some of the aspects of that debate here uh, today. 
So the ceiling of the saints, verses 1 to 8, let's go ahead and read this section. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the earth, or on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east, who had the seal of the living God. He cried out in a loud, a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed, who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. Uh, Verse 3, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard a number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites, 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from Simeon, 12,000 from Levi, 12,000, this all includes from the tribe of, from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 Zebulun, 12,000 Joseph, 12,000 Benjamin. All right, so what are we dealing with here? This is the ceiling of the 144,000, the 12 tribes of Israel. So first, uh, verse one says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, uh, restraining the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth or the sea or any tree. So four winds could mean all of the winds, uh, all-inclusive. That is drawing on the four directions of the compass, north, south, east, and west. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, 9 to 10 says, He said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophecy, son of man, say to it, that this is what the Lord God says, breath, come from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they may live. Uh, so this is an unknown, the four winds in apocalyptic. Uh, Daniel 7.2, Daniel said, I in my vision at night I was watching and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Um, so the, the four could just be all inclusive uh, and that referring to all of the directions. When it says four corners of the earth, right, uh, this is probably referring to northeast, southeast, northwest, and southwest. Um, but again, um, we're not entirely sure. Just my estimation, my interpretation is everywhere. Um, it's all inclusive, all, all directions. Um, in First Enoch, which is obviously a, also apocalyptic literature, so it's helpful in trying to discern what this means in Revelation because it's a contemporary with First Enoch, the four winds from the four corners of the earth bring varying forms of destruction. And that's, that's what we're seeing here as well in Revelation. So heat, drought, cold, snow, locusts, and pestilence. So uh, depending on where you are on the earth, right, heat would come from, if you're in the northern hemisphere, from south, Um if you're from the northern hemisphere, cold would come from the north. And so as these winds bring uh, various things with them, they're bringing uh, destruction, various forms of natural destruction. Um, so First Enoch 76, I'll read a brief uh, segment of this. And at the ends of the earth, I saw the 12 portals open to all the quarters of heaven from which the winds go forth and blow over the earth. Three of them are open on the face of the heavens, three in the west, three in the right of heaven, three on the left. Uh, The first, uh, excuse me, and the three first of those of the east, uh, so on and so forth. Let's jump to verse four. We're in chapter again, 76. Uh, Through four of these come winds of blessing and prosperity. From those eight come hurtful winds. They bring destruction. So the idea is that he's saying, hold off on destruction that's going to come from the four corners of the earth until we seal the saints. Um, now in light of Zechariah chapter six, it's possible that the four winds are synonymous with the four horsemen. Um, so Zechariah six, five to eight, the angel says, these are the four spirits of heaven going out, uh, after presenting themselves to the Lord of the whole earth. The one with the black horses is going to the land of the North. The white horses are going after them, but the dappled horses are going to the land of the South. 
So this really throws a kind of a curveball to us here. It's possible in Zechariah, the four spirits, and the word for spirit is also wind, are synonymous with the horses, the four horses. And it could be the case here in Revelation as well. Um, um, one of the reasons we question that is because verse 1 says, after this, and after this is after we've already seen the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um but it could also be referring back to the reality of the four horsemen. Remember, in apocalyptic literature, time is fluid, so we're not entirely sure. What we are sure about is that more destruction is to come, but before that destruction comes, God is going to seal his people, preserving them from that uh, destruction. Okay, um, so let's see here. Let's go to verse 2. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east who had the seal of the living God. He cried out with a loud voice of the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. Um, we're not sure why it's from the east. Um, some have suggested that this is Christ as he is referred to ri- the rising sun of righteousness as the sun rises in the east. So this is an angel that rises up from the east. The sun also rises up from the east and Christ is referred to the rising sun of righteousness. So it could be, it could just rising up from the east, that little phrase, it could just be a picturesque detail. Um, who had sealed, had the seal of the living God. The seal is likely similar to that of a signet ring of a king, and this would be like God's signet ring. Um, We're going to learn later on from chapter 14 in Revelation that the mark on the forehead is the lamb's name, that is the name of the lamb, and his father's name. That is the mark. So you're like, what is the mark, the seal of God's people? Well, the mark of the beast is 666. The mark of God's people is the name of God. And we'll learn then uh, that that refers to belonging or possession, that these belong to God, uh, being marked with the name of God. Um, And that has uh, its roots in Old Testament uh, notions. Revelation 14, then I looked, and this is verses 1 and 2, and there was a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had the, his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Um, so, uh, let's see here. And again, I've already mentioned the mark of the beast uh, that is, remember that the beast and the powers of darkness are always mimicking God and the powers of light, uh, the, the good powers of goodness in uh, the book of Revelation. So just as God marks his people, with the name of Jesus, the name of the land, and his name. So the beast marks his people with the mark of the beast, 666. Um, okay. Now, of course, this seal is uh, having roots in the Old Testament, not just the notion of God putting his name on his people. Where he puts his name is where he dwells. It's the place of his dwelling. A lot of good research here on this. Um but we also see in Deuteronomy that God commands his people to bind the law as a sign on their hands and on their foreheads, or that is, uh, as the front, the, the language is the frontlets between your eyes. And so this uh, is drawing on this Old Testament idea, the mark of, the, of God on the right hand and on the forehead. The question then is, what did that mean in the Old Testament? Well, it means devotion. If you bind the law of God on your hand and on your forehead, it is an outward sign of your devotion to the law, that it is always set before you, it is always in front of your eyes, that you're concentrating on. It's kind of like Psalm 1, uh, the blessed man is the one who meditates on the, the law of God both day and night. And this shows his devotion. It's the one who's devoted to God, who will be like a, a tree planted by streams of water who yields fruit in the season and leaf doesn't wither. And so the mark of God's people 
in the book of Revelation, uh, the meaning of his name on the hand and the forehead is complete devotion. And this, of course, is what we get in the, the Shema of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.4. You shall love the Lord your God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and strength. In some, you shall be completely devoted to him. Everything is for him. Now, the mark of the beast then uh, is suggesting the same thing. The mark of the beast on the hand and the forehead, 666. And we'll, we'll talk more about the symbolism of 666, but it's saying the same thing, that the beast also requires complete devotion, just like God requires complete devotion. Uh, said another way, the devil is not satisfied with just getting parts of you. He wants all of you. Um, he wants your entire soul. He wants to devour you. And so he will always require more. Um, in the same way, though, Jesus always requires more, and Jesus uh, requires full devotion. The difference is um, devotion to Jesus and his requirement for full devotion is driven by his love for us and for a desire for our well-being, for the generation and sustaining of life where the devil's full devotion requires our destruction. It's driven by his hatred of us. He despises us because he is jealous. We are these hybrid beings that exist in the spiritual yet have physical material components to us, which he doesn't have. And that's disgusting to him, or at least he's very jealous of it, both of those things. So um, anyway, uh, not too much there on Satanology, uh, but any full, devo full devotion is the idea that we're getting at here. So that's what the seal is. So how does the world know who God's people are in the end days? They will be fully devoted to him, meaning they don't compromise. They don't adopt a policy of accommodation. They don't say, well, we can be Christians and live the way that world lives in some ways. No, it is those who remain holy, remain faithful, who persevere, who conquer, who don't tolerate evil or wrong teaching. And that's the same lesson that we learned from the letters to the seven churches uh, in, in chapters uh uh, two and three. So, uh, cried out with a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. These are God's angels, not demonic foes. Um, <clears throat> as they are called forth by the authority of God, he cried out in a, that is, okay, so let's make sure we get the grammar here, right? Verse two says, I saw another angel rising up from the, from the east who had the seal of the living God. And he cried out in a loud voice. So he's sealed of the living God. And so he's carrying the authority of God and he is the one calling out. Um, so these are God's angels. Sealing again, two meanings. I say again, we, I, I, I touched on it briefly, but more detail here. Um, sealing means uh, protection uh, and belonging. So let's look at why and how that is. Um, as verse three says, don't, harm the earth of the sea until we seal the servants of God. So protection and belonging. Protection. Ezekiel 9.4, Pass throughout the city of Jerusalem, the Lord said to him, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the detestable practices committed in it. So this mark is protecting uh, those who are faithful from God's wrath, from his judgment, um, which is consistent even with the notion of being washed in the blood of the lamb, the alleviation of sin guilt, being protected from final judgment because of being in Christ and our sins being atoned for. So this is interesting. This Ezekiel passage is very resonant with what we're seeing in Revelation. He's saying, mark those who groan over detestable practices. Um, it's okay, not only okay, it is 
required of the faithful, of the church, of true followers of Jesus, to groan and sigh over detestable practices in our midst. Um, It's okay for us to be disturbed by what we see going on around us. We can't help but think of the sexual revolution. Uh, Those are detestable practices, um, according to the scriptures. And it is perfectly normal for God's people to groan and sigh over that, to be frustrated and saddened by these things and to express that. Um, Whereas our culture tells us that there's something wrong with us if we think it's detestable and that it should be celebrated. And the scriptures say definitively no to that. Uh, We also see a seal as protection in the Passover lamb during the Exodus, of course, Genesis 4. Um, We also see that God places a mark on Cain uh, so that whoever finds him won't kill him. And so this mark on Cain is protection, just like the people of Israel are protected from the angel of death when they are marked or sealed with the blood of the lamb. So there's protection far as a seal is concerned, but also belonging. Those who are sealed are servants of God, which is a contrast to those who belong to the beast. Uh, we see in Revelation 1-2 to that the followers of Jesus are called his servants, meaning he has ransomed them, he has purchased them, he belongs to them, and there's a mark on them that says, paid for, <laughs> is essentially uh, the wonderful word picture that we have here. Uh, again, Revelation 2.20, I have this against you, you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality. Um, so the question is, uh, not a further question, but a th- further issue here is we've said that the seal is the name of God on the hand and the forehead, but the seal could also be the Holy Spirit, which could mean the same thing. It doesn't have to be two distinct things, but just another layer of meaning. It could be the Holy Spirit because um, we see the Holy Spirit referred to as the seal of the Christian in the New Testament. Circumcision is a seal of righteousness, and the Holy Spirit replaces the cir- circumcision, the practice and ritual of circumcision in the New Testament. Romans 4. 11. And he received, that's Abraham, the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness, that he had faith while still uncircumcised. 2 Corinthians 1.22, he also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. Ephesians 1.33, in him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth. Ephesians 4.30, and don't grieve the Holy Spirit, you were sealed by him for the day of redemption. So, Um, Nonetheless, when we say that the seal is the name of God on the hand and the forehead is symbolic of complete devotion, well, who empowers complete devotion of the believer? The Holy Spirit. We can't complete and utterly devote ourselves out of our own strength. It's on the basis of grace and Jesus' atoning work that the Holy Spirit abides, dwells in us, and ignites in us a complete devotion to Jesus. The same way the Holy Spirit empowered a complete devotion in Jesus to God the Father that led him to obedience, even death on a cross. And so the Holy Spirit can empower us to do the same as we face adverse, uh, adversity and uh, persecution as Christians. The Holy Spirit can enable us to be completely devoted and remain faithful when the world around us is rising against us. Verse 4, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 from every tribe. So uh, just as he, just as uh, John heard the sound of a roar of a lion, but was surprised to turn and see a lamb in chapter 5, verse 6, which I know was a few episodes ago, here he hears, um, we're going to draw on this a little later, but he hears the number of the sealed, 144,000 from every tribe, and then all the tribes are listed, but it is a little bit of a funny list. Um, one of the tribes is left out, which we'll see here in a minute, but... Nonetheless, when he turns and sees, he doesn't see Israelites. He sees a multitude from every nation and every tribe. 
And I'm suggesting that this is similar to when he hears the roar of a lion, but yet turns and sees a slain lamb. That is, um, the 144,000, I believe the text is suggesting, is not a distinct group from the multitude from every tribe and nation. That when he turns and looks, the 144,000 is what he's saying is not just Israelites, ethnic Israelites. It's people from all over, uh, which attests to the universality of the gospel. Okay, but we'll get more to that later. Let's look at the 144,000. This is 12,000 times 12. And so uh, this is a perfect number, 12 being the number of God's people, uh, stemming from the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, And also, of course, the 12 disciples. So 12,000 times 12 is all of God's people, the perfect number of God's people, which is also in support of the idea that the great multitude is... uh, is synonymous with the 144,000. It is all of God's people, not just ethnic Jews. So, But some interpreters, they do read this literally as the number of Jews who will be saved by uh, in the end. Um, and this comes through in LaHaye and Thomas's work. Um, most read this symbol, however, for completeness, as I've just mentioned, Israel's tribes, total 12, 12,000 times 12, that is all the tribes are there and all the individuals, individual members of each tribe are present. And the suggestion is no one is left out. But again, some have said, no, this is a literal 144,000, and this is the number of ethnic Jews who will be saved. Um, I struggle with that because I don't think 144,000 is a literal number because we're dealing with apocalyptic literature. It could be. It could be. I, I think this is a non-essential in our uh, in mere Christianity, in our historic consensual faith. Um, so I'm willing to concede that I absolutely could be wrong about that. Maybe it is a literal 144,000 that is ethnic Jews. I, I tend to interpret this as a symbolic number, however, and I could be wrong. Um, so we see 12,000 again in Revelation 21.16 as the measurement of the New Jerusalem. Remember, um, uh, 21, 16 to 17, the city is laid out in a square and its length and width are the same. And the city um, is measured at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. So it's 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000. It's a giant cube. So we see this number again. Um, again, I believe it's symbolic, but some would suggest that no, that no, it's quite literal. I had one student here at Wesley Biblical make the case that it could be that the new heavens and new earth are, these are the literal uh, material measurements to go by. And so that's, that's possible. I don't deny that. Um, I, I don't think it's the case, but again, just an opinion. So here's the list of the tribes, Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And you'll notice that Dan is left out. I'm sure you've picked that up. Also, uh, what's also a little bit weird here is uh, Joseph is listed, where usually we have uh, Simeon and Manasseh who are listed, not Joseph. So uh, just a couple comments here. Most of Twa, uh, the list of the 12 tribes who had territory in Canaan is different than the list of Jacob's sons. Levi had no land as the priestly tribe, and Joseph's territory was divided between his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. I got that wrong. I said Simeon and Manasseh. Um, but nonetheless, oh, la, 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 la. so this, this list is unique in three ways. One, first, instead of including either Joseph that is Israel's son, or Ephraim and Manasseh, who are the grandsons who received tribal territory, that is Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Revelation includes Joseph and Manasseh, but not Ephraim. 
Uh, so this is this is a little distinct. It's likely that Ephraim, however, was wrapped up with Joseph, Joseph, as they are closely identified together. So when this list lists Joseph, Ephraim is assumed. So um, in Numbers one thirty two, it says the descendants of Joseph, the descendants of Ephraim, according to their family records. So in other words, Joseph and Ephraim are synonymous; they're wrapped up together. Um, we see this also in Ezekiel thirty seven, belonging to Joseph, the stick of Ephraim. Or some would say Ephraim. Ephraim is the proper interpretation. So that's the first odd thing. We see Joseph. We see Manasseh. Um, we don't see um, we don't see Ephraim, and we don't see. And the next thing that the next thing that makes this unique is Dan is omitted. We don't know why. Some have suggested reasons. I don't find any of the arguments compelling. Um, so also a third thing that makes the list unique is that the sequence of names in Revelation 7 is unlike any other sequence in Scripture. Um, we do see Judah being first, and that's obviously intentional because Jesus is born of the tribe of Judah. But after that, the program behind the sequence is completely unknown. This is totally unique. I don't know that there's—I would be really careful about any uh, hypothesis that, that tries to explain this particular listing. Um, I think the idea is it's 12 tribes. And it's everybody. It's all. Now, what is up for debate is, is the 144,000 a literal number and distinct from the great multitude that we're going to see next in verses 9 to 17. So let's stop here for this episode. And in the next episode, we'll deal with the second half of the chapter, which is the great multitude. Thank you so much. This is Matt Ayers with Seminary Unboxed, the official podcast of Wesley Biblical Seminary.